everyone, I'm Amadal Yakpur, and this is M Train, the long awaited six part mini series from See Something, Say Something and Brick Radio. The series focuses on New York City and features Muslim stories from around the metro area. This week, we'll be visiting two Brooklyn based sex educators engaging in boundary pushing work on pleasure, intimacy, and sexuality. But first, let's take a moment to discuss the series. Obviously, See Something, Say Something has always focused on American Muslims, and New York is a iconic place for the American Muslim Ummah. There are tons of American Muslim landmarks in the city, from Halal Guys to Malcolm X's Mosque to, you know, IHOP. Um, but we wanted to tell stories of the people making up New York City's Muslim communities right now, those who are pushing the boundaries with stories that often go unrecognized as Muslim. Each of our six episodes will take you to different locations along the transit system. It'll be quirky and fun and things that can only happen in New York City. The miniseries is made with the support of the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Arts Building Bridges program and co-produced by Brick Radio, a Brooklyn-based audio network that amplifies community. By the way, there's also some video elements to M-Train. You can watch some video clips from our episodes at youtube.com slash bricktv, and I'll share them on the See Something socials. Throughout this process, my series co-pilot has been Shireen Barri. She's a senior producer at Brick TV. In this episode, Shireen and I are going to go speak to two sex educators, as I mentioned. First, we're heading to Please, an educated pleasure shop in Brooklyn, to speak with Sid Asmi, the owner and founder of the shop. And then we speak with Wazina Zondin, who co-curates the storytelling series Coming Out Muslim, Radical Acts of Love, which centers queer voices. But before we head to Sid and Please, Shireen and I discussed our attitudes towards sex and sex shops growing up in Persian and Pakistani households before we went. Before we move on, just in case it's not obvious, this episode, we'll be talking about sex a lot. Hey Shireen, so uh, before this episode, had you ever been inside a sex shop? So funny story, the first time I went to a sex shop was back in 2010. As you know, I grew up in Iran. There aren't many sex shops in Iran. There are some like risque laundry shops, but not really like sex shops and like the kind you see in New York City. So the first time I went, I remember it was Halloween. And I went in thinking that it was a costume shop because I remember <laughs> I was going, I don't even remember what I was going as, but I remember I like walked into a shop that I thought was a costume shop and it ended up being a sex shop. And I remember I was like, I had like this moment where I was like, oh, yeah, no. So I, <laughs> I quickly came out. But yeah, what about you, Ahmed? So I feel like, yeah, there was definitely like sex shops in Saginaw where I grew up and I felt like, like, I had to avert my eyes because, you know, like, you didn't want your parents to know that you yeah. were, like, interested in sex. You know what I mean? Um, it's just, like, a funny thing about growing up Muslim. And then when we would visit New York and there was, like, in New York, there were a lot of visible sex shops. And there were much more 
uh, less repressed maybe than the mm-hmm. than the Saginaw ones, which is like it's like Lovers Lane and there's like a like a dark curtain you can't it's see. It's called anything. Lovers Lane. That's the one in Saginaw. <laughs> yes, and like we would walk around New York City, and again, like I would feel like the shame, which is so funny because like sex isn't something that you necessarily need to feel shame about, but for whatever wow. reason, I grew up with that feeling. I think there's like a there's like a fine line. I think, um, and everyone has their own thing. Like I don't have a problem that I'm a little bit repressed. Like it's okay that I'm a little bit repressed. Yeah, like I it's don't. It's part fe- of our culture. I mean, it, it's 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 not for some people. Obviously, people are different depending on their. Do you think it's like repression or is it just like being, I don't know, like being private? Because for me, it's I privacy. Don't th- I don't think it's like repression. I just like the same way that you know, like growing up, for instance, I didn't really like to talk about my period. Right. I always like I remember I'd send my mom to buy me like stuff whenever I got my period. But now I feel like I've become a lot more. I felt like a lot more comfortable talking about it, you know? So I feel like it's the same with with sex. I feel like it has to do with privacy, not with shame. Obviously, like, I have grown and I don't feel like that, like, experience of feeling shame at Lover's Lane is where I'm at now. (laughs) But I still don't feel like I would feel very embarrassed, for instance, Mm -hmm. if I walked into a sex shop for, like, you know, whatever reason and, like, somebody saw me there. I would feel so much shame. Yeah, that's it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So what we have for this story is someone in Brooklyn, New York, who grew up Muslim and made a career pivot into running a sex shop. Well, which she calls actually, an, educated pleasure shop. Correct. So she's trying to kind of uh, cent- not make it kind of that lascivious, shameful thing. She tries to take the shame out of the equation. Yeah, she, she tries to, like, highlight the fact that this is, you know, a need. And the more education you have of it, a lot less problems you'll have down the line. So the owner of the shop, her name is Sid Osmi. Her shop's name is Please. And as you said, it's an educated pleasure shop. And we went to go visit her in Brooklyn. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Welcome to the show, Sid. Thank you for having me. What is Please? So Please, uh, as you said, it is an educated pleasure shop. Uh, And so our aim is to desensationalize sexuality and to make education a big part of how we view our sex. Uh, Because sex is not just for the young, it's just not for the beautiful and able. Sex is for everybody from all religions, from all cultures, from everybody in the world. uh, And it changes as we evolve through time. And how long have you been running the store? It's about five years now. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, what were you doing before you were running the store? Sure. Uh, so I was a practicing radiation therapist, uh, which means I give radiation to cancer patients. And during this time is when I sort of realized that there was a disconnect um, between the conversations of sexual recovery post-illness and medicine. People were recovering from prostate cancer, breast cancer, but nobody was talking about what was going to happen to them with their sex life. Nobody was talking about the quality of their sex life after this. You know, I've had young women come up to me and say, oh, you know, I'm... 35, I don't have my breasts anymore. Like, great, I'm cancer free, but I don't feel sexual because a big part of my sexual anatomy has now been removed. Um, And so what do I do with myself? So, Sid, can I admit something to you? Absolutely. So I... Uh, this is one of the things I love most being at the store. <laughs> so I, uh, you know, I grew up in a Pakistani Muslim family. Mm-hmm. Um, sex was not totally absent. However, we did not really talk about it very much. And I feel like that has followed me into my adult life. Um, so this is probably my first time really, like, sitting in a... Well, some people might call a sex shop. That's Obviously, okay. yes. you, you are trying to change, change uh, some of the viewpoints around that. 
but like, what are some of the things you sell here? So let's experiment this, because let, let me throw these questions back to you. How did you feel before coming here, and what were your thoughts about, you know, having this interview in a sex shop? Sure. So I think um, I had read about you, and I knew that what you were doing was different and that I would feel comfortable here. Yeah. However, my discomfort is around my own personal relationship to it. Like... I don't like admitting like that I have sexuality at all anywhere. Like that's a that's a that's a sort of pick uh, something I've picked up from you know my family. Well, people that's number me. one key. You've already said that, and now you've already passed that hurdle. Okay, and now you're here, and you're <laughs> no. now now you're in the store, and you're sitting next to me. You know, and I regard myself as a hedonist, uh -huh. which is a you know, somebody who's supportive of all kinds of pleasures, whatever that means for you. And you're in the shop in the presence of dildos, lubricants, anal toys, penis sleeves, sorry, pardon me, uh, <laughs> cock rings. How do you feel? I feel okay. It feel like, I mean, it's partially the way you've done it, right? Like, right. for instance, there's, uh, there's rainbow flags up here that show, like, you know, it's very LGBTQ positive. You've talked about ability as well, that you're sort of um, helping people who may have issues accessing their pleasure and it's it's neutral it's, and as it's you said. open and it's there's open windows and the people walking about and there's a preschool across the street and dominoes and it's a family neighborhood so i hope that it has made you feel like sex is part of our lives this is part of our everyday like reality right um and i think what i what i would like for for people to experience this is that you know there is no standards in sexuality uh and how i experience pleasure is very different from how you experience mm -hmm pleasure and we've all come with associations because of our bringing because of our religion culture whatever because of our friendships you know our friends don't tell us the truth all the time uh. the, the the point is however we choose to move forward is 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 up to our choice and I would like for please to be that place for you where you can come in here and say I want to I want to have a new standard I want to do something new I want to try something new how do I go about doing that and it's about you yeah, um, and I, I want to talk more about the store, but I also want to know a little bit about your personal story, who you sure, are as a sure. person. Um, were you always able to have <laughs> open conversations like you are now? Like, what was it like for you growing up? I think I was always sort of an internal rebel um, towards a lot of things. I grew up in Singapore, and I grew up in a Malay Muslim household. I would like to say that my experiences are unique to me. Not Absolutely. all Muslims, not all Malays, not all Singaporeans experienced the same things I did. I was... Um, you know, unfortunately, was was abused uh, sexually and uh, physically when I was younger. I was circumcised at birth, not because my parents thought they were hoping to remove pleasure from me. It was because that was just a thing that everybody did. And so I grew up in that kind of household where, like yourself, we don't talk about sex. Hey, but even like a Caucasian liberal New Yorker can't talk right. about sex. Right. So that's okay. I've always wanted to know more about things. Um, and as I grew older and I went into medicine, radiation therapy, and I you know, was exposed to all these different issues. And I think being married to a doctor sort of allowed me to have these conversations, these intimate conversations in a medical sort of way. It's, it, it got me rethinking about how I wanted to talk about it and how I wanted to approach it. But I am curious if you have uh, attracted um, any women who come from like a similar background to you at all? Absolutely. Like from, you know, maybe more religiously or Absolutely. sexually conservative time you know, Muslim societies. What has been some of the experiences with some of those customers? How do you guide them or build community well, with them? I mean, first of all, I commend them with all my heart for them to be able to even walk in here and says, I want to do something different. I realize that there is someone like you out there who's just like me, and I want to learn more. And that is, that is the halfway mark that they've made that I can meet them at. 
That's perfect. Uh, I've done I've done some classes at, at mosques in Boston wow. uh, where we talk to couples about sexuality. Now, the thing is, we always have to take the conversation of sexuality within the context in which it is practiced or viewed. So I can't talk about LGBT queer sex in a group of Jewish community. It doesn't work that way. You have to talk about it in a way people relate to it. So I'm not going to come in here and say, if someone, if a, if a woman you know, from that kind of background comes in here and say, I want to please my husband, and da, 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 I'm not going to say, oh, you shouldn't do that because it should be just about you and female pleasure mm -hmm, comes first mm -hmm. okay this is important to you you want to take care of your partner right. in order to take care of your partner this is the things that you must do and I slip in a little bit of here and there you need right. to know what you like for yourself you need to be able to take charge of things you need to know your anatomy you know so we, we there's subtle ways in which you can um, educate people to be more open-minded about sexuality in the narrow-minded context of where they've come from right yeah. I love that you just drew that comparison of meeting people where they are, because I think that's um, some of the challenges that it comes to with like people moving into, like myself, maybe moving into sex positive space is they don't understand the sort of you know, trauma or, Absolutely. you know, confusion that, yes. you know, still still uh, follows you throughout your whole life. Obviously, everyone has their own personal journey. Uh, and, you know, building trust is a big part of it and understanding where people are uh, coming from. And I appreciate that you do that. Um, that's a great transition to talk about men. <laughs> Yay! I love men. I'm a feminist who absolutely adores men. We're, we're you know, we mostly obviously like a lot of, uh, you know, sex positivity work is about women embracing their bodies Correct. and their sexuality. <laughs> However, there's a lot of challenge around getting men to understand the way in which women want to be pleased or women want to be respected as, you know, um, sexual partners. So what, what is some of the stuff that you have done around trying to address that? Like, what do you, what do, you do when you, like, you mentioned the situation with the Jewish woman and her husband who may, it might be centered on the man. What yeah. are the, some of the other ways we can challenge that? As a society, we've, we're trying to swing the pendulum where, you know, women have a, a bigger voice, a rightful voice to talk about their pleasure and to get pleasure where they want to and how they want it and when they want it, you know, and, and, it, sometimes it feels unfair to me that we are having this conversation uh, to help women get pleasure w in the absence of men being involved mm -hmm, in that dynamic. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, women have been, girls now are told you can be a boss, you can be a CEO, you can open a sex shop, you know, and men are not being told you can be a housewife, you can be a gardener, <laughs> you can be a, you know, you can be a cook. There's not enough models and messages to boys to tell them that they, they can be the opposite of what patriarchy has taught them to be. So it's the same thing with sexuality. You don't have to be the one with a penis erect all the time. You don't have to be the one to initiate all the time. You don't have to be the one to like give me an orgasm all the time. Your erection, your orgasm, your satisfaction is not your responsibility. It's our responsibility as we communicate. It's a responsibility of communication with each other. And there is female and male energy that exists in every human being. You are a male, you can be a very strong alpha male, but there's a feminine energy in you that exists where you are tender, where you are kind, where you are soft. And there is, I'm a female. There's definitely a lot of that in me. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it should be celebrated and it should be talked about and it should be shared. Yeah. And I think, you know, I always say that incredible sex happens when vulnerability, vulnerability mm -hmm. is shared without judgment. Communication is important. And I think this is where the issue lies is that we have not 
been taught how to communicate about sex. Today, everybody tells us we should talk about sex to our children, but nobody tells us just how. I'm a bird when it comes to talking about sex with my children. A few bad stuff have scared me off completely. In this film, we are going to discuss quite frankly the things that are normal and to be expected in the development of children in relation to sex. Mary, the baby doesn't come out of your navel. Let me tell you how it is. Um, so I want to um, hear some stories of some of your customers. Obviously, respect their privacy and all that. But what are some of the you know folks that come through? You know, our... It's it's a uh, it's. When I train new staff and I said, oh, you know, you're going to be working in a pleasure shop, you're not just doing retail. You're actually really going to be holding people's vulnerabilities mm -hmm. in your hand. It's mm -hmm. an opportunity for you to create a lifelong impression. Um, and you will find that you will have many unexpected conversations. For example, somebody walked in one day and there was this woman looking for... Um, a, a vibrator. No, she was looking for lube. And she was a little bit like, you know, standoffish a little bit. She doesn't want to communicate. So I'm like, okay, well, this is the lube. You can look through it and you get back to me. And she's standing by the lube, count, the lube shelves for a while. And then I, another customer walks in and we're talking about lube. And I find her sort of listening in, you know, and uh, she's obviously interested. So that customer bought left and she's like, oh, tell me a little bit about this. Uh, but she also has, a, she's a little bit more curious now, but she's also still kind of like standoffish. So I said to her, you know, do you mind if I just just ask you a question like have you experienced some sort of trauma are you sort of like mm. in a in a journey where you're trying to find things and she opened up and she says well you know I had leukemia uh, mm. and I'm recovering from it and you know I dated somebody and he broke up with me because I was not able to have sex so I'm sort of nervous I met someone recently that I really really like and I don't want to disappoint mm. and it's like okay number one kudos for you your body's going through a lot your mind's going through a lot your heart is going through a lot we can get through this slowly, and I think it's wonderful that you came in here to figure out what you can do for yourself. And that has to happen first in order for you to be able to seduce or flirt with this person. What are some misconceptions that people have about sex shops? Right. So, uh, so I, you know, when, when, we, when we talk about sex shops, you know, immediately the thing that comes into mind is, you know, pink neon signs, it's sleazy, it's a corner, sh corner shop with blind shades, and there's like a guy standing by behind the counter. Um, and you probably like sex a lot because you open a sex shop and you're a whore. Like, these are all the little buzzwords that come up, right? And so, uh, therefore, when, I, when, I, when people ask me, oh, what do you do? I own a shop. What kind of shop? I own a pleasure shop. Changing the language mm -hmm. changes the association that comes with it. Now they ask me, what is a pleasure shop? Now I have their attention and now I have the opportunity to make a change. It is essentially a, a sex shop that sells sex body products where we have conversations about sexuality as, as in how people experience sex. This is something interesting that I feel like comes up a lot in the spaces I'm in. I'm not saying that it's universally true, but I think in a lot of American Muslims, they've tried to reclaim the position of sexuality from our tradition that it's actually like in the last 200 years of colonialism is when we became repressed and prior to that yeah. like there's all these like you know m miniatures from many of the Persian Mughal eras of you know Rumi and Hafiz Rumi and Hafiz very you know, very kind of not repressed tradition yes. compared, you know that, that poetry our poetry is about love yes it's about and God is about pleasure and one 
big teaching of our religion is to be kind to ourselves. And what more, how else can you be more kind than to be physically tender with yourself and to be able to teach yourself the values of respecting your boundaries, knowing what they are through discovery and then sharing it with a partner that you love and being able to listen to each other and like communicate this. Allah wants once, once they're beings to be good to one another, I think that's the fundamental of all religion is for us to be kind to each other. My whole view on this, especially around gender and sexuality, is that, you know, all the religious scholars that ran the thing, of course there were men and of course they excluded <laughs> women and like queer folks from it. It is of utmost importance that we adults learn about intimacy in the light of Islam. Many other girls who acquire the desire... The mark of a Christian! is self-control and self Islamic teaching on, on the matter of gender identity is uh, rooted with, within the culture in which the, the Islamic revolution was taken in adultery, brought to the Jesus. The word halal or haram, we have the the stage set for many problems they aren't ready to handle. They don't do it that it way It is anymore. not acceptable. It but is not acceptable. But like the reality of most Muslim lived experiences was not like that. It was no. much more open, I think, than people realize. And we tend to look at those scholarly interpretations as the as what Islam is all about or what you know being Muslim is all about. And that's just not true because, like we said, Hafiz and like all these other yes, like, yes. Uh, to be near to God is to be amorous with one another is one of the sayings of Hafiz, you know. And 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 I believe this is true. It's like. Again, not having these conversations is a disservice to ourselves. I wish we could sit down as young Muslims and say, you know what, we respect each other. And when we get when we're getting what we need from each other intimately, I think we have the tendency to stay together, which is what the religion wants us to be is longevity. Um, so perpetuate that. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Sid. You're Where can welcome. people follow, please, and follow the work you're doing? Sure. So um, we're here located in Brooklyn. You can always come to visit the store because I think that visit will sort of help you, you know, dissociate your mindset a little bit about what sex is. I, I invite you to come to Please. We're in Park Slope, Brooklyn. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at PleaseNYC. Before moving on, it's worth noting that there's an increasing focus on sex and sexuality in some Muslim circles. Instagram accounts like The Village Auntie and books like The Muslima Sex Manual, A Halal Guide to Mind-Blowing Sex, have open conversations about the place of pleasure in Islam. There's also another story happening across North America of queer Muslims building spaces to comfortably express their full identity. Places like the Tarab or LGBT Muslim Retreat or Masjid al-Rabia in Chicago. In New York, there are spaces like this as well. Wazina Zandan's Coming Out Muslim series, which she co-curates with Turna Tilly Gyado, has been doing work for nearly a decade, starting in 2011. We headed to her apartment in Manhattan to discuss the importance of those spaces and her work in sexual education. So we're here at Wazina Zondin's place in Manhattan. She's graciously opened up her apartment for us. Thank you, Wazina. She is a sex educator and co-creator of the Coming Out Muslim series, Radical Acts of Love. And we're here to talk about some of that work and some of the community building you've done. Um, so thank you so much for joining us, Wazina. Welcome to my home. If somebody has never been to a Coming Out Muslim show, you know, you've done it since 2011. Mm -hmm. 
tell us what it's like. What it, what is the idea behind it, and what is what do you experience when you come to one of your your shows? Yeah. So coming at Muslim was born in 2011. It's a simple storytelling performance, and we alternate stories between myself and Tana, my counterpart. I was queer before I converted to Islam. And in converting, reverting, I made a clear, intentional choice to follow the path of my heart. I've never felt Islam asked me to be something other than what I am. And if Allah is closer to me than my own jugular vein, ya halak, ya bari, ya mustamir, closer to me than my own jugular vein, creator of my heart, the source of its blood and beat, how could I despise myself? It is true that the messages, the onslaught of homophobia, sometimes make me secretly have to reassure myself that Allah has blessed me abundantly, lovingly, generously, and every prayer I've ever prayed has been answered. This is my proof that the Most High has not forsaken me. So sometimes it feels like it's a simultaneous one-woman show, but there's two of us. Mm. Um, because our stories overlap, and they also have major arcs that kind of go away from one another. And it's on the themes of like love, partnership, our relationships to God, our families. I never gave much thought to why or how or what made me queer. Um, I always felt like my coming out was pretty anticlimactic because <laughs> I knew I was queer the same way heteros know they're like straight. So I just was who I was, I liked who I liked, and I found who I found attractive. It didn't really matter to me. I was okay with it, but it seemed like everybody else need, needed some sort of explanation to explain to themselves why I was queer. So um, I have some of my favorite theories on what made me queer. Theory number one. Boy George made me queer. <laughs> And I think a lot of times people come thinking they're going to hear one particular narrative and they're almost resistant to that and or hungry for it because they like people love like that sad mm -hmm. like inspo like that kind of like they really want that like really sad narrative and then it ends up being none of that. And in fact they see themselves in the stories a lot more than they expect it to. I think sometimes people like think they're gonna like hate on us. Like Muslims that are like, this is gonna be really anti-Muslim. You're like, oh crap, I really cried in, throughout this entire thing. So meaning like there's this idea, I think you're touching on that comes from various places, both outside the community, within the community, that there is not space for queer Muslims mm -hmm. in Islam, that they are somehow fundamentally incompatible. But you don't start, you, that's not at all where you're coming from at all. It's, it's, you're already past that when you're on the stage, right? Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's not a critique of being Muslim or a critique of Muslims not creating space. It's more of a critique of like our queer white spaces mm -hmm. that are so-called progressive spaces that can hold in their imagination radical Jews and radical Christians and even, you know, all the, the, the breadth and depth of queerness, but not for Muslims or not for immigrants or not for brown Muslims. And so it's a little bit more of a pushback on that. What are, what are what are kind of the things people tell you after the shows? What what yeah. how do they experience the show? Yeah, I think a lot of the uh, Muslims that do come or or folks who actually may uh, may identify as more secular, or they've left Islam, or have taken a pause from Islam, or have had really just 
bad experiences with their cultural interpretations of the, of the faith. So what I often hear are people saying, I didn't realize I still remembered that dua mm. or that prayer. Mm -hmm. I can't believe I was so choked up hearing the azan in the beginning. The call to prayer in the beginning with purpose is either done by somebody in the community who oftentimes uh, somebody who's gender kind of non-conforming or a woman, someone who's essentially not a dude. Um, because the azan is oh, we always hear it through the this male voice, and then the, the third common thing I hear is people saying, "I thought I was the only one." Mm -hmm. So for you and your co-creator Tana, what is you talked a little bit about cultural interpretations of Islam? You both must have had a different journey through your cultures and your queer identity. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us like a little bit about how you got to the place where coming out Muslim was your work together? So I grew up in Islam, um, and I have actively always chosen to be Muslim, and I grew up in an Afghan community in Flushing in Queens. But I did know growing up I was queer, so my being Muslim in the rest of the world wasn't a problem for me because I knew I was a weirdo regardless. Not even weirdo because <laughs> uh -huh, I was a queer person. Uh -huh. I was a weirdo because we just didn't look like the other Italian and Jewish and other white kids that went to my school. So there was always something other about me. Um, being queer and Muslim was like the last of the the last of the things that I struggled with. Mm -hmm. So you've been in New York for quite a while. What would you say are some of the spaces that um, you know our queer Muslim community organizers have put together mm -hmm. in the city? Yeah, so there are like the dance party queer spaces that now are not just where queer and brown folks and Muslims can show up. And depending on how you demonstrate and live your Muslimness. For a long time, I never would see someone wearing hijab out at a queer dance party and because that's lots of layers. And I think most of the layers is the discomfort that other folks might have with seeing somebody visibly Muslim and mm -hmm. wearing something that like a hijab makes people think, well, why are they here at a bar and all that stuff? It's them, right. them projecting onto them. Um, but there's all these different queer dance parties and spaces, culturally kind of celebratory places and opportunities like monthly parties. So I love those. Um, because that is a, such a healing thing to do, to reclaim your song, your dance, your music, and to have it be part of your co-created pop culture is just, that's the magic of New York. And then there's a monthly book clubs, and during Ramadan there's like Quran studies and just iftars together. I think many of us might have grown up with being Muslim or Islam being policed onto us or being mapped onto us by our families in a very particular way when we didn't have choice we weren't agents of our own faith practice. And so this is an, both an opportunity to create it for yourself and also be unapologetic and not have to, to explain any of it to anyone. What I also think is really fascinating about you is you're also a sex educator as, mm -hmm. a, as a trained professional. That's something you do, you know, mm -hmm. that obviously dovetails with your work. But in your, what is, can you tell us a little bit about some of the work you do outside of the Muslim community, some of the things that, you know, you've learned from your training as a sex educator that you mm -hmm. take into your work? Yeah, so yeah, I'm a sexuality educator and trainer, and I did not grow up talking about sex. 
puberty, I was like, you know, none of that stuff. My parents just would say like, well, we'll pick your husband for you, which then led me to a know that I couldn't talk to them about anything. So I would read things like YM magazine in the library with my cousins and it's terrible. You know, I guess also YM dates me because no one knows what YM is. I'm sorry. I don't know what YM, <laughs> YM magazine is. is like an early preteen. Like Cosmo kind of thing? But like a preteen, yeah. Okay, like, okay. Yeah, Tiger magazine. Beat. Tiger yeah, but Beat it was like around, around that time, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. It was terrible. But of course, we could only read in the library. But there are so many things that I had questions about, like, again, about puberty. Am I normal? All that stuff. Normal so, questions yeah, that we all have questions. that we don't always, questions, yeah. our families don't always yeah. give us the answers. Yeah. So too. my work as a sex educator has allowed me to create not just holistic sex ed that talks not just about the junk and the HIV and birth control and that prevention, but all of the, the slices, for lack of a better word, of what makes sexuality this bigger entity. So it's body image, self-esteem, um, sexual orientation, of course, gender, um, sexualization, violence, uh, consent conversations. So it's all of that. And so it's not, so I'm not, not just about like what's good sex ed, but I do always wanted to center the concept of like pleasure and gratification and mm-hmm. desire and mm-hmm. fantasy. All of that also is part of it because I want to resist that if we're going to be talking about sexuality education, it's only because we're trying to prevent something. Um, it's not just about pregnancy prevention. It's not just like the negatives or it's like don't do this it's also like you can do all of this if it's if you and your partner or partners choose to do this um that also it's lgbt affirming and then it's also meant to be intersectional it's Mm -hmm. meant to also offer just the not just a variety of experiences but interrupting how like white dominant culture informs sex ed or traditional sex ed what if i want to have sex before i get married well, I guess you just have to be prepared to die. And you'll probably take with you your spouse and one or more of your children. Coming out doesn't mean you have to come out and your parents going to be a P-flag or like super supportive person. It also is meant to push back on how we teach kids who's hypersexualized, asexualized, desexualized. It's meant to be co-created with the students you're teaching. So so can I just ask yeah. on like a functional level, like yeah. what is your day-to-day interaction with students? Are you at a couple of schools? Mm. Are you, you know, like how many mm-hmm. schools do you work with? Um, so I was in fully in the classroom for the last 11 years. The three, four years before that, I was a traveling sex educator. I worked in Orange County and Dutchess County upstate. Um, so I went from schools to prisons to teaching parents. Um, but the last 10-ish years was I was in one school. And I went from sixth grade through 12th grade with the same students. So we developed this deep relationship and intimacy. And so we would build on the information from middle school through high school so that, A, their parents and family members also knew that this person is consistent. I trust this person. And I was also doing work with their parents. What was like the demographics of the kids like? I mean, I'm just I mm-hmm. I'm a Midwesterner, okay? Yeah. I'm not from New York at all. Mm-hmm. I'm an outsider totally. So I'm very always fascinated by the New York City school yeah. system. And I'm sure you have a lot of, you know, within reason of privacy of all your students mm-hmm. stories that, you oh, know, yeah. you could share about how interesting it was to work in that mm-hmm. in that system. Yeah, I so I mean, I grew up in New York City. So the school my school was a little bit more diverse in terms of just like I mean, I also went to a school with 3500 students so right, right. there's that diversity um but the schools that i've been working the last 10-ish years was um all girls public schools it was 100 percent young women of color so predominantly black and brown girls and then we also had a um 
because in, in, in an all girls school in, in, in New York City, we also got a lot of a mix of like Muslim girls across like the right. diverse, you know, like in terms of like, whether Yemeni, Bengali, black Muslims. And that was like just like my favorite because what would happen is you'd have some students and Muslim girls themselves were like, Miss Wazina, I can't learn about this right now. I, like this is against my religion. And I was like, no, it's not. And also their parents were like, no, it's not. Because their parents <laughs> were also parents? saying yeah. like, just like my parents were like, you know what, we are not going to, we don't talk about that stuff at home, but you are allowed to go talk, go talk about that at school because that's what you're supposed to be learning at school. Right. My parents did sign the sex education mm-hmm. approval form. That's not the case for all Muslim no. immigrant parents. Um, and I think it was like massive, for instance, to see a, a like a video of a birth in class. I was like, whoa, I would have never mm-hmm. thought to find that. And that was a hugely like educational thing yeah. for my public school system education. Mm-hmm. I'm not surprised to hear that your students were pushing back. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? That some of your Muslim students were feeling yeah. like they didn't have to learn it, you know? Yeah. So I think one thing that I am picking up a lot from, you know, um, your work and this interview we've done with Sidazmi is that there's a space for joy in conversations around sex. How do you find the space to bring joy into this work where there is a lot of shame? Yeah. So for me, like, like the joy comes inherently to me from, mm-hmm. from Islam. Right. But I think a very like unique thing that I, that might be for me is that being a queer Muslim and girl and all these things, you know, there's all the layers of uh, and, and being a queer Muslim girl in this culture, and like the U.S., right? And you're like trying to undo all of the body shaming and the feelings of being ugly and not enough, all that stuff. So I think some of that's like the work that I think many of us have to like just give ourselves some credit for from early on as kids through adulthood. We're constantly trying to shake off some shame or some mm-hmm. version of shame or say like, you're okay, you're enough. You may not, you know, fine, I may not be enough of a Muslim today, but I'm enough of, of a, an educator in an all-white space, or I'm enough of a, I'm enough of a queer in this one version of queerness community, right? Like, right. I'm, like the solidarity, the camaraderie, the mm-hmm. family making, and the ways different versions of family and chosen family, like, uplift you, um, that I find the joy in all of that. And I'm like, all right, all of us are normal. Right, right. Mm. You're fine. You're great. You're normal. Nothing. No version of your Islam is wrong, um, nor is any version of your sexual identity and the fact that you like made out with a girl and you're a guy. I was like, wow. Like you're just kind of affirming and confirming people's humanity, and trying to and co-revive one another in your humanity. Right. Um, it's amazing how powerful that statement "we are all normal" is. Surprisingly, I just <laughs> never think about it in terms of like body and like. I mean, I know that it's kind of like. It is in some ways, it's part of way, the way our culture around body and sex have changed. But it's still like, despite the complexity of mm-hmm. all of our identities, we're all still normal. I think that's a very powerful ide- idea. <laughs> Sexuality is very, very complicated. Um, for people who are listening in who, you know, maybe are struggling with their sexuality um, in its many complexities throughout our life, what is some advice that you mm-hmm. would give them? I think first one is, what I said to you, we're all normal. Like every part of your curiosity, your desire, your wanting to act on it, and you're acting on it is normal. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong here. People in your life are simply reconciling their own stuff around it. There's, if you're particularly for folks who are queer, Muslim, trans, Muslim, all the different layers in their cultural identities, there is nothing like incompatible about you nothing that doesn't fit here and I think that's a big one and that's a big piece that I still kind of 
I work through it myself that there's nothing wrong here. There's no singular way to be queer. There's no singular way to be Muslim, to be trans, to be a woman. So all that, there's, there's nothing wrong here. And you don't have to apologize or fix or like acclimate or adapt to somebody else's version. Just be patient with the people around you. Like asking, I really like, not all of us, even if we grew up in this country or had all the privileges, do not have not been set up to have these conversations or to hold the space for our, especially our children. So our parents, like just be patient with them. They will surprise you in ways that are not the benchmarks that other people have though. Mm. You're placing yourself in an existing sexual education system that has had many messed up histories, like with the abstinence only mm -hmm. education that has, you know, was my childhood of the Bush era. Choosing abstinence requires character, self-restraint and self-respect. Every day in America, at least 10,000 teens become infected with sexually transmitted diseases that can harm them or prevent them from ever becoming parents. Abstinence is the only certain way to avoid these diseases. That is why I have proposed a new grassroots campaign to inform teens and parents about these medical risks. How do you place yourself within that? How do you complicate you know, some of the messages that are mm -hmm. already existing in the sex education system. Yeah, sex ed is, I mean, and sometimes I think we are always like so, like we're like just grateful that a school has something called sex ed, but we have to make sure that our sex ed is, is abstinence plus, right? So it's great to offer skills to say no and don't do it, but it must be um, sex positive. It has to be affirming of all, like not just like, of not well, of LGBT queer folks, and not just talking about LGBT issues when it comes to sexual orientation only. We must have the visibility of them in the, when you talk about relationships and we talk about STIs and HIV and prevention, it has to be across the gamut. Like sex, sexual orientation can't just be in one part of your sex ed curriculum. Um, it must be intersectional, it must be done in collaboration with all of the stakeholders, both students, family members. So just thinking about that piece and of course, I mean, ensuring that if we're talking about we must bring up like the legacy of how racism has played out in sex ed, making sure that there's like the visibility of um, of all identities are there. Um, and I would always, I really encourage teachers to think about how their bias plays out. So who do you talk about and how do you talk about certain cultures and identities being hypersexualized, being mm. asexualized? So when uh, is the next coming out Muslim show? When can we expect oh. it? Do we have a plan for a future one? I'm hoping for like an Eid, some sort of, yeah, Eid coming out Muslim performance. Right. And also before you go, can you tell us uh, where people can follow you in your work? Yeah, so you can, I mean, I made sure that I took all the Wazinas in the internet early on. Um, so I'm Wazina Zandin at Twitter, just Wazina on Instagram. Zina Zan on Facebook, coming up Muslim on Facebook, and we have a website soon to be updated. So we'll uh, look forward to that, and we'll, you know, I'll share it on my Twitter and all that stuff. So if people want to come to the next coming out Muslim event, uh, you know, they can. So thank you so much for joining us, Wazina. Before we go, check the episode description for more info about all the people we spoke to today. Next episode, Trinidadian Roti and Caribbean Vibes in Brooklyn. Hey, 
M-Train is a six-part audio series hosted and produced by me, Ahmed Ali Akbar, and Shireen Barghi. It is edited by Mira Al-Rahim. Additional production support for this episode by Sasha Whittle. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham and Sasha Mathias. Follow me on Twitter at RadBrownDads. Follow See Something, Say Something on Twitter and Facebook at See Something. And follow Brick Radio on Twitter at Brick Radio. This episode featured music from Freesound and also compositions by Mira Al-Rahim. It's also made with the support of the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Arts Building Bridges Program. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org radio. See Something, Say Something is on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash Thanks to some of our patrons like Ted Delphos, M. Tulsi Ray, Mustafa Nasruti, Remy Carroll, and Stacey Marie Ishmael. I'm Ahmed Al-Yakbar. Thanks for listening.